0: Welcome to Wildwood College Life of Wildwood Community Church in Norman. We are four following Jesus together to the glory of God. We meet on Sunday mornings at 9:45 for Bible teaching, breakfast, and fellowship, and would love to see you there this week. Follow us on Instagram at Wildwood College for more information. And with that, let's dive into this week's message. Uh, hopefully, you have your Bibles in Matthew five already, um, but I need to share a story first about growing up as a child. Was anyone kind of a rebellious child? Yeah, I'm not alone in this, am I? Okay, so growing up, I wouldn't say I was disobedient, but I would say I would look for loopholes, okay? Did we have any you know, shrewd loophole people? Yeah? Okay, that was me. And I remember one specific instance when my mom, she came in after I was done playing with some friends out in the yard and she said, hey, you need to take a shower. Well, I was about to pick up the sticks on Madden 03 as a third grader, and I was about to really get into video games. So I was like, I don't have time to go through all the hullabaloo of taking a shower. So what I did was, I did the old trick. That's the gym. Uh, I did a trick where I went to the shower, I stuck my head underneath the faucet, got my hair wet, dried it off, and went back to playing video games, okay? The next day, my dad took me to school, and he asked me, Kevin, when's the last time you took a shower with soap? And I had to answer truthfully, two weeks. It had been two weeks since I had to, yeah, that's gross, right? But I was a third grader, all right? I was a third grader, and I responded truthfully, two weeks. And the reality is, I technically... Obeyed my mother, right? I took a shower. And after that, she started changing, hey, go take a shower with soap. But the reality was, I knew what she meant, right? I knew what she meant, but I didn't, I, I instead obeyed the letter of the law instead of the spirit of the law. I completely ignored the intent. And similarly, God had given the nation of Israel the law. Knowing their condition, God gave them the law to bless them bless the nations around them, and they'll lead them toward right living. And by the time of Jesus, the Pharisees, which is where we have these, you know, this sermon that Jesus is preaching about the law, the Pharisees had perverted the law and no longer did the law's intent matter, but what mattered were the rules and traditions that the Pharisees had put into place. It mattered not what the intent of the law was, but it mattered only what the Pharisees had developed as far as their tradition goes. And so the Sermon on the Mount, what it does in uh, chapter 5 specifically, is it deals with the intent of the law. See, we are more similar to the Pharisees than we want to admit. How often do we get concerned with the letter of the law? Now, you might be thinking, I don't do that. But how many times have you thought to yourself... Is this a sin? Is that a sin? What, how far is too far? And the reality is the goal of the Christian life and the goal of the law was never intended for people to get as close to sinning as possible without sinning. The goal of the law was always to point people to righteousness, point people to right living. It wasn't intended to get as close as we can to the line of sin. And so I hope today we can see the intent of the law. See, Jesus will show us the intent in a variety of relevant issues of the day that are actually really relevant to today as well. And he'll reveal the intent of the law going through these specific lessons, which are divorce, oaths, retaliation, and loving your neighbors. And we'll see the intent of the law as, one, the intent of marriage is to be a permanent bond. Number two, the intent of our words should reflect the truth. Number three, the intent of responding to wrongs wrongs, is by responding with love. And number four, the intent of love is impartial to enemies and neighbors. And by looking at these four object lessons, I think we will discover that because God's righteousness is revealed in the law, then we should pay attention to its intent. We should pay attention to its intent. So in Matthew 31 through 48 that Josh read, we'll see these four object lex- lessons, okay? So we are going to begin with the force, okay? And it begins in verse 31. Jesus says this, It was also said, Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So the intent of marriage, Jesus is trying to make clear here, is that it was a permanent bond. As Jesus begins these object lessons, the first one, he he starts a pattern. You have heard it said, referencing usually the law or man-made traditions, as we'll see at the very very end. And Jesus says, but I say to you. And this pattern is not Jesus changing the law but reframing the law to help us understand its true intent. And he'll reference this by usually doing that, but I say to you type language. Now, interestingly, this passage that we see on divorce right before it deals with adultery. And the language is really similar, just as lusting after a woman is committing adultery in your heart. Jesus is using similar language. If you remarry a divorced woman, you are committing adultery. And among the Pharisees, you know, why Jesus might reference this, the issue of divorce was not significant. It was not a significant issue. There was a provision made by Moses about divorce. Therefore, they thought divorce was okay. I mean, it was legal according to God. It was legal. But by saying Whoever uh, marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Jesus was basically saying that a legal cert- certificate, a legal certificate does not qualify as a divorce in God's eyes. A legal certificate does not count as a divorce in God's eyes. Outside of a few exceptions, divorce is just not something that should happen among believers. And that's because the law always intended for marriage to be a permanent bond. Jesus will say, talk about divorce again in Matthew 19. We're in Matthew 5. In Matthew 19, he'll address this topic again. And what he says is, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Now that's because there is a difference between a covenant and a contract. There is a difference between a covenant and a contract. The world today says that marriage is a contract. It's an agreement between two parties to do their taxes together, to you know get recognized by the state that they are together. There's all these reasons that the state wants marriage to be a legal thing. But according to God, it is a covenant with two people, a man and a woman, that is ordained by god covenanted by god god is the originator of marriage and so that's why it is so much different than a mere legal contract it is a promise to one another affirmed by actionable sacrificing love to one another a covenant is affirmed by its action okay so in contrast to the pharisees who encouraged divorce jesus discouraged divorce Now, he also says except for sexual immorality. In other places in the New Testament, what you'll find when divorce is being talked about is there are a few exceptions for divorce. One being abandonment and the other being sexual immorality. And many, including myself, conclude that abuse would be in that abandonment category. But the key to remember in all of this is that these are exceptions, not requirements. These are exceptions, not requirements. See, even when these things happen, even when sexual immorality happens, there can be forgiveness. There can be grace. And that's one thing that I think distinguishes Christian marriages from worldly marriages. Christian marriages is all about sacrifice. It's all about grace. It's all about forgiveness. It's putting the needs of the other person before yourself. The world views it as a deal, a transaction. What am I getting out of this? That person is a catch. Man, I got a raw deal on that. You know, those types of languages, that type of language is used when talking about marriage or finding a partner. But marriage is not a collection of transactions. It is a picture of the gospel. And so when we talk about these symbols of sacrifice and forgiveness rather than transactional affection, then that should help us clarify why these are exceptions, not requirements. The point of marriage is not to find a reason to divorce someone. The point of this passage is not to give you all the reasons why you should divorce someone, but is to emphasize the permanent nature that God intended with marriage. So the question is, what do we do with friends, parents, and other believers who have been divorced and even remarried? That's a question that we all might have coming to this verse. And with any issue, I think any issue, the first thing that we should do is we should seek to love them, encourage them, point them to Jesus. Just as forgiveness and grace are at the center of the best marriages, forgiveness and grace are at the center of every good relationship. It's not a mere transaction of what you're getting out of the deal, even to those who have been divorced and remarried. See, God recognizes here that divorces will occur, and even if the exception is not included. But they should not feel any less loved by God. They're not second-class Christians, and certainly God can still use them for his glory. The second topic that Jesus talks about is the topic of oaths or making promises. And this is what he says in verse 33. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. So the key verse here is verse 37 here. And Jesus gives all of these examples because among the Pharisees, they had created this elaborate uh, rule system for why and when and how actionable an oath was. Okay, so let me give you an example of what I mean by this. So, Essentially, sometimes people would take an oath and basically saying this is what I intend to do or this is what I say is true. And what they would do is they would make sometimes an oath with God as my witness. And other times it would be something less than God saying I swear on heaven. The point of the lesser oath according to the Pharisees and their logic was to allow flexibility. It was to allow flexibility. Basically, if God's name wasn't involved, it's not all that bad if I break a promise or I break an oath. But Jesus, through all these examples, is saying that the Christian's words should be marked by the truth. Always. Not just under special circumstances. Not just under special oaths. And that's the second point today, is the intent of our words should reflect the truth. This is what Jesus is saying. If you are a disciple of me, if you are a member, a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, then your words should not need an oath. They should not need extra weight because you are marked by the truth. As Christians, our words should be marked by the truth. It should not be dependent on what your promise is on or on whose name it's by. This is because our words should be so reliable so trustworthy that we don't need anything else to support our claims. And that's why I believe that Christians should be marked uniquely by their commitment, by their follow-through, by their faithful commitment, that when they say something, their honesty matters. If we say we're going to do something, then we should do it. If we can't do something, we don't commit to it. When people don't believe it, when we don't swear to God or swear on the Bible or someone's grave, that is not what we should need to help someone see that we mean what we say. We help people see that we mean by what we say by actually following through, by actually doing what we said we would do. We simply state the truth and let our body of work, a.k.a. our life of honesty, give us credibility. As many of you know, my favorite TV show in the world is Survivor, okay? I absolutely love the TV show Survivor, new season premieres this Wednesday, and it is a crazy show that has devolved to a social experiment of who can outwit all the other players, but really, it's who can manipulate people the best, okay? That is what the game has turned into, And, you know, there are challenges, there are game mechanics, there's, you know, immunities and things like that. But it's primarily a social game of manipulation. And if you ever wanted to see what it looks like to live in rebellion to this command of Jesus, watch Survivor. It is a great show of what not to do when it comes to keeping your word. There's a famous player. It's actually my wife Carly's favorite player, I think, maybe. His name's Russell Hance. If any of you Survivor fans know what this guy is, this dude was crazy. He would take socks of people, burn them in a fire. He would just lie people up and down saying, I swear on my mother's grave. I swear on, like he would swear on people who didn't even exist. Like this guy was crazy. And that is the exact opposite of what Christians should do, okay? We should let our yes be yes and our no be no. When we say we're going to do something, we do it. See, in each of these circumstances, Jesus explains the intent of the law. We cannot consider the law as something where we get so close to the line before stepping over it. Would you rather be in arm's reach of devastation and judgment, or would you rather be in a place that is God's will, his intent to follow Jesus? There's a difference between trying not to sin and following Jesus. There's two separate thought processes thought processes. So let's talk about these two ideas at our table and then we'll return for the second two. All right, guys, let's get back together. Hope you had good discussion at your tables. I wanted to say since we're going through four topics, I'm not able to get as nitty gritty in every single detail. So if you have any questions, feel free to come up to me after the after the service and I can answer whatever questions you have. Okay. So today, Jesus has been teaching us all about the intent of the law. And in so doing, we are seeing that because God's righteousness is revealed in the law, then we should pay attention to its intent. The third object lesson, the 5th Matthew Matthew 5, deals with retaliation. Retaliation. So continuing in verse 38, he says this, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. get even is pretty popular among our social imaginary today it's in songs it's in tv tv shows it's in movies it's in advice from friends from parents to kids and jesus teaches us pretty clearly here that that has no place in the kingdom of heaven the idea of don't get mad get even has no place in the kingdom of heaven and using four examples here he clearly explains that you should not resist the one who is evil. Jesus makes it clear that the intent of responding to wrongs is to respond with love, to respond with love. If ever you've been wronged, which we have all been wronged, is our natural response to want to retaliate, to get back at them, to make them feel how we felt. But that's not the response of the Christian. That's not the response of the one who is marked by Christ. When we look at the picture of Jesus, whenever he was beaten, whenever he was arrested, when he was crucified on the cross, how did Jesus respond? Did he say, I'm going to destroy the whole world right now? Did he stop everything and pay pay back the Roman centurion? No, he said, forgive them, Father the response to what what happens to us when we get wronged is not to retaliate in kind, but is to retaliate with love. The characteristic that embodies the kingdom of heaven above all other qualities is love, not retaliation, not revenge, not personal justice, but love. Now many, when they read this, they, th- they think that Jesus is calling us to be a doormat. And now I don't necessarily think that That's exactly what he's saying. Oftentimes throughout this whole chapter, he is using hyperbole. And I think it's important to recognize that what was the law doing? We're looking at the intent of the law, right? What is Jesus trying to explain? Well, in the law, there were provisions made for the Israelites when it came to retaliation. The law essentially said that retaliation had to be an equal measure and couldn't exceed what was received. Now, why do you think God gave them that provision? Why do you think God gave them that provision? Jesus explains that the intention was not that they would seek out ways to get even. It was not looking for ways in which they've been wronged, but it was to ensure that they were protected from using excessive aggression, excessive vengeance, and you know having these personal vendettas, Right? God wants us to love one another and to put the needs and welfare of others before our own. So, no, we're not being a doormat, but we're also putting the welfare of others before our own. Do you know how hard it is to think like this in a world that is so focused on the elevation of self, what you deserve, your worth, what you should get? But here Jesus is elevating the welfare of others before us getting our own personal justice. At the end of the day, these four explanations show that love must be at the citizen of the kingdom, the citizen of the, the heavenly kingdom. It must be their governing principle. Love, not retaliation. Now, the Psalms are full of what we know as imprecatory Psalms. If you've ever read a Psalm and been like, wow, that was kind of crazy. David was just wishing his enemy's downfall and all of these things. It could be like, okay, how do I pray this? We know that the Psalms are a book of prayers, a book of hymns. How do I pray this? Well, the Psalms are meant to be sung. They're meant to be prayed. So how does enacting justice in the Psalms fit with this idea? How does it fit? Well, I think it fits because there's a difference between desiring justice and personal hatred, right? There's a difference between praying for justice and having this personal hatred towards someone. See, we can see and we can pray these Psalms with this in mind. It's and I think there's kind of a system that we can go about doing, because we want to focus on us, right? That is our natural inclination when we come to prayer. How many times when you first pray, do you think of others? Or what drives you to pray? Is it usually your need, your situation, whatever you're going through? Well, I think the first thing that we can pray, the, the biggest enemy that we can all pray against, is Satan, the schemes of the devil. That they would be defeated. Just when we're reading through this imprecatory psalm about the enemy's downfall, how can we frame that prayer to make it our own? Well, we can pray against Satan, the world's biggest enemy. We can pray against our sinful nature, our biggest enemy. We can pray against the lies that the world has believed as Satan has deceived people's sinful natures. In large, the world has adopted these lies. And then lastly, for justice with your enemies. Notice, none of this has to do with retaliation, but it's that God's righteousness would be accomplished. See, it's plain that vengeance is not ours to enact, but that when we have been personally wronged, we respond in love, which leads to the final topic of loving your enemies. I like that Jesus saved this one for last. I like that he saved this one for last. Many have thought... Of this day, uh, many, many commentators, when they're talking about why did Jesus bring this one up? Well, there had been a logical conclusion that had been made among the Pharisees. That the natural opposite of loving your neighbor is hating your enemies. That would be the natural, logical conclusion. But that is nowhere in the Old Testament. So when Jesus says, here in a moment, you have heard that it was said he is not referencing the Old Testament like he has in all of these circumstances leading up to this point. But he is referencing the man-made traditions or the man-made explanations of the law that were not the word of God. So this is what he says in verse 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So Jesus helps us see that the citizen of the kingdom does not hate their enemies, but he or she loves them. And that's the intent of love. It is to be impartial to your enemies and to your neighbors. This is so hard. It's easy to hate your enemies, right? The natural motion to those who have harmed us, harmed our loved ones, is to respond in hatred, in enemy is anyone who elicits this anger, right? This hatred in our hearts. But one thing that determines the love from the Christian, from any other person, has nothing to do with what they have done. I'm going to say that one more time. One thing that determines the love of the Christian from any other person has nothing to do with what they have done. It has nothing to do with what they look like, how nice they are, funny they are, popular they are, cute they are, it all has to do with who they are. They are a fellow human being. They are a fellow image bearer of God whose value has been imputed on them from creation. One thing that is a hallmark of Christianity is its radical love for their enemies and a desire for all humans to flourish. That's why Christians invented Sunday school to teach poor children how to read because they were working in factories every other day of the week. That's why Christians like William Wilberforce and Hannah Moore led the charge to abolish slavery. That's why Christians adopted in mass baby girls who had been discarded in the street to die in first century Rome. That's why Brant Jean, the mother of murdered Botham Jean, was able to forgive Amber Geiger in 2019 after she mistakenly entered his apartment and killed him thinking he had invaded her home. I wanna share that story. After Amber had committed this crime and there was public outrage, she'd been sentenced finally to 10 years in prison. And in the closing remarks, where the, the, the family was able to share some remarks, the brother shared these words with her in the courtroom. And I just want you to listen to what he says. She had killed her brother, his brother. Nothing he had done, killed his brother. He says, if you are truly sorry, I know I can speak for myself. I forgive you. And I know if you go to God and ask him, he will forgive you. And I don't think anyone can say it. Again, I'm speaking for myself and not on behalf of my family. But I love you just like anyone else. And I'm not going to say I hope you rot and die just like my brother did. But I personally want the best for you. And I wasn't even going to ever say this in front of my family or anyone, but I don't even want you to go to jail. I want the best for you because I know that's exactly what both of them would want you to do. And the best would be Give your life to Christ. I'm not going to say anything else. I think giving your life to Christ would be the best thing that both of them would want you to do. Again, I love you as a person, and I don't wish anything bad on you. I don't know if this is possible, but can I give her a hug, please? Please? And amazingly, Brandt comes off the stage And embraces his brother's killer in a beautiful act of forgiveness. By every worldly standard, he should have hated her. He should have condemned her. But recognizing the grace he had received by God, he did as Jesus commanded. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. He understood how he had been forgiven by God. He understood the mercy that he had received. And that is what allows for the Christian to radically forgive. The famous Welsh preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones once said this, Our treatment of others must never depend upon what they are or upon what they do to us. It must be entirely controlled and governed by our view of them and of others. Their condition. Many in, our, many in our culture would describe love as just a feeling, a deep feeling of affection. But we see that Christian love is marked by its action. Just like our enemies have sinned against us, we too have sinned against God. The only difference is that every single one of our sins has been against God, every one of our persecutor sins against us is just a fraction, yet He forgives based not on our efforts to right our wrongs, but based solely on His mercy. His mercy. The reality in all of this, all of this, is that none of us have this righteousness that Jesus is talking about here. In Matthew 5.20, He says, "...unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven." none of us have the righteousness that, we've t- that Jesus has talked about in these six examples. None of us have it. So how can we enter the kingdom of heaven? How can we live in light of these commandments that Jesus has given us here? Well, there's only one whose righteousness met this standard. There's only one whose righteousness did it all, and that was the God-man, Jesus Christ, who came down to this earth, lived a life that you and I couldn't live, and died a death that you and I deserve, taking on the full punishment of sin, that anyone who would put their faith on Jesus would be saved. They would be saved, not only from the punishment of sin, which is hell, but that they would be saved to walk in newness of life, that just as Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, that we would walk in newness of life, that we would live in light of who we are, Declared by God as righteous, that we would live a righteous life, not because of our hard work, but because that is who we are. We have become a new creation that can live a holy life. That is what we do in response to the forgiveness we've received. We forgive others as Jesus has forgived us. Jesus, our great teacher and Savior, showed us that, number one, the intent of marriage is to be a permanent bond. Number two, the intent of our words should reflect the truth. Number three, the intent of responding to wrongs is by responding with love. And number four, the intent of love is impartial to enemies and neighbors. Y'all, not only should we listen to him, Jesus, but we should love him. We should trust him. We should worship him. And we should give our lives to him. He is worthy of it all. Let's make him Lord of our lives this week, okay?